Hey, thanks so much. Um, I don't know how smart I am. Uh, six months ago, or it was maybe four months ago, I told PJ, uh, PJ, I could talk on um, leading in times of difficulty, not really anticipating what was going to transpire, <laughs> having committed myself to that. So uh, the last six months have, have honestly been the hardest six months of my life. And uh, I, 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 I say that understanding that there's people in this room that have had and experienced things a lot worse than I've experienced. But I stand before you this morning in weakness, really in weakness. I feel like I've been in a boxing match. Me and my wife have been in a boxing match for the last six months. Not with each other. We're fighting on the same team. I've had uh, four of my closest friends look at me in the eye um, over the last six months and tell me, Brian, you're tired. Uh, Donnie actually flew for one day to come and tell me this. Brian, you're tired. We're concerned for you. How can we help you? And uh, so in the midst of that, we've, we've, we've just faced challenges. One of, one of the challenges that is good and bad, something that we can celebrate and something we grieve about is my best friend. He led worship today, Kelly. He did such a phenomenal job. I'm sorry to all the other worship leaders. He's my favorite. <laughs> Kelly and I have been in ministry together since we were 13 years old. I'm 41. That is 28, am I doing the math right? 28 years of side-by-side ministry, and three weeks ago, he left our church to go take over the leadership of a new site at Southlands. We applaud it. We applaud it. But at the same time, we grieve. We grieve. So we're celebrating at the one time, but, but grieving. In the midst of that, there's been spectacular moral failures in the life of our church, and we as an eldership team have had to navigate through financial difficulties, and it, it feels like we have gone through the ringer. And uh, I'm sure if we polled people in this room, there's people with a lot worse stories than me. We're watching that couple in Turkey, and I'm thinking, how in the world can I even talk about experiencing difficulty and opposition? So this morning, what I want to talk about is leading through opposition. And I don't stand before you in strength. I stand before you in weakness, in profound weakness. It's been many nights that Rachel and I have wept together over the last several months. And uh, so I want to look at uh, Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a great example of a leader, Nehemiah is a guy that we can look at and marvel at his leadership gift and capacity, and we can learn from him. What's interesting about Nehemiah, which I want to know more information, I want to know more information about his soul and how he's processing all these challenges that he's facing, but the book really doesn't give us that. But we are going to look at chapter 4, that gives us this picture of Nehemiah leading the people of God through transition. So just to give you some context, Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah has a burden. He hears about the broken walls of Jerusalem. He's brokenhearted about it. He immediately moves to praying and crying out and fasting. And he prays 
for 50 plus days crying out to God. Chapter 2, he goes before the king. He has favor. He has commissioned to go survey the walls. Chapter 3, he gathers this group of people in Jerusalem and they begin to build the wall in chapter 4. So we get to chapter 4 and they start to experience opposition. So Nehemiah chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now when Sam Ballot heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged and he jeered at the Jews and he said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it up for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it up for them in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yes. What they're building, even if a fox goes up it, he'll break down their stone wall. That's the, that's the sound of an evil minion. <laughs> Verse 4, hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunts on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in the land where there are captives. Do not cover their guilt and do not let their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Just a stark transition. Verse 6, so we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Samballot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to close, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Verse 10, and in Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble and by ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And all our enemies, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. I don't know if you are getting a picture of what's transpiring here, but they are being opposed by the enemy. And the enemy is angry. The enemy is livid. There is a work being done, and the enemy is getting ticked off about it. It starts off with just, oh, this is irritating and mockery. Oh, this pathetic, these feeble Jews, these miserable Jews, these weak, what are they doing? What do they think they're doing? And then it turns to anger, an increasing anger. And then the enemy begins to uh, scheme and plot against them because the enemy wants the work to stop. And in the midst of that, the people are getting discouraged. They built the wall to half its height. They had a mind to work. And then all of a sudden, they're experiencing opposition. And they start to get fearful. They start to get weary and tired. They start to think there is too much work. There's not too much work. They just finish half the wall. All they've got to do is just finish the other half and they're done. It's too much work. They're discouraged. They're tired. They're miserable. And on top of that, they have the, the surrounding Jews that are not participating 
in this work. And they're saying, hey, you guys are crazy. Do you not know? Are you not in fear for your life? You're going to die. Come back. Stop doing what you're doing. You are insane. Come back with us. Stop doing what you are doing. Now, this is a critical moment. This is a critical moment in what's transpiring. You look at the book of Ezra. They had a a desire to rebuild the temple. And uh, we see that that work got stopped because the people got discouraged. And here we're at that critical juncture again. Are the people going to give in to their discouragement? Are they going to give up? Nehemiah 6, Nehemiah says, that the work God had called him to a great work. The work that Nehemiah called, uh, that God called Nehemiah to was a great work, and Nehemiah was focused on the great work. It wasn't a great work because they were building a wall, and this wall was so spectacular. No, other nations had bigger walls, and then why the work was great is because God called them to the work. That's what made it great. And Nehemiah understood this. This is a great work. And what... It's happening right now. This critical moment is the work is in jeopardy of stopping because people are tired, because people are discouraged. Now, we're not too dissimilar. I don't know if you realize that or not, but we are God's people and he has called us to a great work. We are called to make disciples, plant churches, all for the fame and glory of God. What God has called us to is a great work. It's a great work. But as soon as we begin the work, we face opposition and we face challenge. I don't know why we're surprised. I don't know. I mean, it constantly was like, why this opposition? It's like we are engaged in a great work. For some of you who are moving to new areas or you're starting a church plan or you're starting a new community group or you're moving to a new area, man, new work, new area, new opposition. And new enemies that we face. Here they are facing the enemy as they participate in God's great work. So what's at stake here is the work is going to stop. So what do we do as leaders when we're being opposed? When our people want to quit, they're tired and they're weary, they they don't want to go on anymore, the work is too much, what do we do? Nehemiah gives us some great insight in what we are to do. So the first point, the first point, as we lead through opposition, is we encourage faith in God. This is Nehemiah's response in verse 13. It said, so in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked in a cross... In, and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people. Now you got to imagine, I, I, can't, I can't read this without thinking Braveheart. This is like a Braveheart moment. If I had a Scottish accent, you know, this would be, it would sound amazing. Here's, no, it's not even going to try. It's horrible. It's just embarrassing. Here's what he says. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. 
Nehemiah's been saying, remember the Lord like, like you, you, you forgot to uh, take out the trash. Remember, honey, to take out the trash. That's not what Nehemiah is saying right now. Nehemiah is saying, put your hope, put your confidence, put your faith in the Lord. See, what has transpired and happened is the people have started to look at their circumstances. They've started to look at the enemy. And as they viewed the enemy, as they viewed the work, as they viewed their own internal discouragement, it's beginning to magnify. It's becoming bigger and bigger. And at the same time, their God is becoming smaller and smaller and smaller. And what Nehemiah says is, remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. You need to remember the Lord. You need to be able to fix our eyes on the Lord in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the troubled waters. We need to have our eyes fixed on reality as we look to Him, as we see Him. Nehemiah says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Sometimes we forget the character and the nature of God. We need to remember who he is and who we are as we relate to him. And we need to place our confidence in him. So Nehemiah, as this leader, isn't just telling the people, hey, here's a good tip. Let's check this off the box. Okay, we're we're facing difficulty. Everybody remembering the Lord? All right, let's move on. No, he he isn't just telling them to remember the Lord. He is leading them to remember the Lord. In times when when God is doing a great work, he raises leaders to remind the people and to lead the people to remember the Lord. You're in this room because you're a leader. And God has called you in moments of opposition and difficulty to be the one that stands up and lead people to confidence and faith in the Lord. Now, this is impossible to do. This is impossible to do if you as a leader or if I as a leader am not myself placing my confidence in the Lord. Man, when times are tough, when times are difficult, when I'm backed into a corner, what I want to do is I want to remember my strength. Remember what I'm good at and lean on those things. I don't want to remember the Lord. I want, to, I want to take it on my own shoulder and I'm going to fight through this on my own. Or on the other side, I, I, I don't remember my strength. On the other side, I remember my weakness. And this side, I'm prideful. This time, I'm just utterly depressed and discouraged and I'm crying myself to sleep on my wife's lap. And oh, it's such a horrible... Or the... Other things that we focus on as leaders is actual people. God has called us to a great work. Our eyes need need to be fixed on him. He He has called us. He has assigned us to this work. And sometimes as leaders, we turn around and we see the discouragement and the doubt in our people's eyes. We think to ourselves, man, we can't lead these people. We can't push them any further because what if they get upset at us? What if they abandon us? I mean, we're called to this work. Oh man, I'm I'm going to take it easy so everybody's happy and nice. What Nehemiah does is he remembers the Lord. He chooses to focus on the Lord. As leaders, we need to be full of faith. Now, 
There's three different kinds of faith. Three different kinds of faith. First, there's conversion faith. This is saving faith, where we put our faith and trust in Jesus. In addition to this, there is continuing faith. This is this daily expression of dependence upon God and, and placing our confidence in God. Examples of this is faith in believing when we can't see it, or, or faith in obeying even when we don't understand it, or faith in in uh, persevering even when we see little progress or faith in trusting even when we don't feel like it. Oftentimes we just kind of focus on the first two because we don't want to get into the realm of hyper-faith. We don't want to be in the crowd of name it and claim it. We've seen a lot of abuses in charismatic camps. They name it and claim it, spit it and get it. We're not going to be like those people. We're not going to be irresponsible in our faith. But the Bible talks about a third kind of faith. And this faith is the charismatic faith. It's the gift of faith. If we're a spirit-empowered movement, man, we need to be crying out for this gift of faith. The gift of faith, as commentators say, we don't have much definition around this. A lot of people associate it specifically to healings, but I don't think it's exclusively limited to healings. One of the um, kind of scriptures that gives us the most clue regarding faith is 1 Corinthians 13. It's, I think it's going to be on the screen. And it, it, it says, uh, and understanding of mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. This, this gift of faith, I can move mountains, do things that are impossible. And this alludes to what Jesus instructed the disciples. Go to the next verse. Jesus answered, have Faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. It's this gift of faith that God deposits in people's lives. Here's a def working definition of the gift of faith. I'll give you a couple definitions. The gift of faith is that mysterious surge of confidence which rises within a person in a particular situation of need or challenge and gives an extraordinary certainty and assurance that God is about to act through a word or in action. Here's another definition. The gift of faith is a supernatural certainty given by the Holy Spirit to some members of the body of Christ. The certainty is an unshakable confidence that God is about to resolve a seemingly impossible situation for the edification of the church. And in our churches, we need leaders who would rise up with the gift of faith. I don't know if you've been around people with the gift of faith, but there's something incredible about the gift of faith. I think Nehemiah here, and maybe you disagree with me. That's okay. He's operating in faith. However you label it, that's fine. I'm going to say he's operating right now in the gift of faith. And when people operate in the gift of faith, something amazing happens. Their faith becomes contagious. It infects and spreads. You ever go to like a dead prayer meeting? 
And everybody's like miserable and sipping their coffee. You know, it's like, holy cow, God, save us, please, Lord. And then all of a sudden, someone comes in, and there's something totally different about them. They have faith for the moment. And as they start to speak, as they start to pray, all of a sudden, it spreads. It spreads like wildfire. Someone catches faith. Another person catches faith. And this is what is happening here as Nehemiah stands up and says, Remember the Lord, the confidence and faith that he has in the great work that God has called them to begins to spread. And all of a sudden, people begin to be full of courage. So, how do we, how do we grow in this? How do we grow in this? I, I, I think if we look at the book of Nehemiah, Man, Nehemiah was a guy that prayed. I mean, almost every chapter he's praying. He actually prays more before the wall is done than it takes to build the entire wall. That's how much he's praying. And his praying, I don't believe, and I'm, I'm, I'm going into speculation here, but I don't think his prayer was, God, God, do this work, do this situation. I don't think it was exclusive to that. I I think it wasn't Nehemiah just praying for a situation to be changed. I think Nehemiah was going before God saying, God, change me. Let me see who you are. Let me remember you, God, in the midst of difficulty and trials. God, I want to see you. I want to put my confidence in you. I think the Psalms give us incredible examples of this. One of my favorite Psalms. Psalms 56.3. When I am afraid... I put my trust in you. That's it. That's the whole, that's verse, Psalms 56.3. If you want to learn a memory verse today, when I am afraid, how about you guys say it? When I am afraid, all right, you guys over here, I put my trust in you. All right, you guys didn't do very good, but that's okay. Maybe I didn't lead very well. I love this verse. You want to know why? Because here's what we do. We say, when I am afraid, Oh, I'm so miserable and it's so hard and blah, blah, blah. We go through these valleys and this roller coaster and we turn in the valley of the shadow of death and then we land way over here. Okay, I'll put my trust in you. It's like totally avoiding it. I'm, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. We read through the Psalms and it's these faith declarations over and over of people who are going before their God and seeing God as he truly is and responding in courage and confidence and faith in their God. We need to be people full of faith. The second thing, the second thing that we see, we need to be people full of faith, but we also need to be people who oppose the enemy. And we as leaders... We need to be people that know how to teach our people to oppose the enemy. We can fall in two errors. One, we could ignore the enemy, act like he's not there. And the other side, we can focus on the enemy and not remember the Lord and be scared and terrified at the opposition of the enemy. Thailand, they said there's big giants. Oh man, there's big giants in this land. But when we remember the Lord, the the giants aren't so big. We're to oppose the enemy. This is what he says. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight. Fight. Fight for your brothers. Fight for your sons. Fight for your daughters. Fight for your wives. Fight for your homes. We, we must fight. And 
As we're embarking on the great work that God's called us, we must fight and oppose the enemy. Our church has been going over a little over nine years. We moved into a new territory, and immediately we, we, we face new opposition and new enemies that we've never encountered before. Many a night, two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning, my wife would be woken up in terror and fear. And us having to sit on the bed and me pray and rebuke and stand against the enemy. I'm sure, that, I'm sure there's countless stories in this room. But it's, it's, it's no joke. It's not make-believe. Spiritual warfare is real. The enemy is real. He hates us. He hates anyone who is making much of Jesus. He hates anyone who is obeying Jesus. He hates anyone who is making disciples of Jesus. He hates new church plants. He hates new endeavors. He hates new missions into new areas. He hates it. He opposes us. We need to... Resist and stand against the enemy. I, I think this is helpful. Hopefully it's helpful to you. Sam Storms, I didn't come up with this list. But it says he came up with three prayers specific to battle. Prayer number one, prayer for spiritual understanding. Colossians 1.9 says that we may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Second prayers, prayers that resist the enemy. 1 Peter 5.9 Resist him, firm in your faith. Here's what Sam Storms, he, he put together a, a prayer resisting the enemy. Let me just read it. Satan, I rebuke you in the authority of Jesus Christ. I declare your works in my life to be destroyed. Jesus triumphed over you in the wilderness, on the cross, and in the graves. His resurrection has sealed your fate. I triumph over you now in the strength of his name. I resist and rebuke your efforts to oppress, afflict, deceive me. I remove from you the right to rob me of the joy and fruit of my salvation. Through the power of the blood of Calvary, I command the power of darkness assigned to me, sent to me or surrounding me now to leave me. Go where Jesus Christ orders you to go. Never return. We need to be praying this over our wives. We need to be praying this over our people. Our elders, we need to be praying this over our church. Prayers of protection. Here's another prayer. Lord, I commend and entrust Rachel into your watchful care. May your glory surround and protect her. May you drive away the enemy and deliver her from all evil and temptation and every attack of the evil one. We must oppose the enemy. The second, third thing that we must do is we must continue the work. Verse 15 says, when our enemy heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plans, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held their spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labor on the work with one hand held his weapon with the other and each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Nehemiah did stop the work. Our temptation when things get difficult and challenging is to think, you know what? Man, it's been so tough. It's been so difficult. Why don't we take a break? 
Nehemiah, in the face of opposition, didn't stop the work. In the face of his people discouraged, in the face of his people weary, he didn't stop the work. I don't know if you're watching, looking what happened. Nehemiah actually made the work harder and demanded more from the people. He said, we are going to work from dawn till sunset. He said, then we're going to now carry the burdens that we are already carrying to build the walls. We're going to do it with a sword in hand. Is that more difficult? Yes, it's more difficult. This is counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive because a lot of people say, oh, you're tired? Oh, you're weary? Oh, the work is hard? Oh, you know what? Let's just take a break. How about we, how about we just all take a break for uh, 12 months, you know? Let's just stop the work of the Lord. God understands. Now, I'm not opposed to rest. I'm going to have a, sabbat- a sabbatical, I think, because other guys are making me do it. <laughs> so... All that is good. I'm not opposed to any of those things. But we never at any point convince ourselves that it's okay to stop the great work that God's called us to. Sometimes Rachel and I will fantasize about what it would be like if we weren't leading a church. I, I don't know what your fantasy is, but our fantasy is we're in the mountains. And I'm kind of like a lumberjack. You know, like the... You know, kind of hipster lumberjack. When, you know, she's in the log cabin. She's, she's, she's making the lemonade and I'm chopping wood. I can't tell you how many times I fantasize about that. <laughs> Here's the one question. Here's the one question that gets me right. The one question that gets me right is, has God called me to this work? Now, some of you, that answer might be, no, he hasn't called you to this work. If he hasn't called you to this work and you're inflicted in difficulty, man, run, run for the hills. But if you're facing opposition, difficulty, discouragement, tiredness, weariness, and God has called you to the work, do not stop. We don't have a choice. And we have example after example. We're not everybody in the New Testament tired and weary. I mean, Paul, what did he do? He was beaten. He was whipped five different times. I love the story in Acts 14. He was beaten so bad they thought he was dead, and then they found out he's not. And he gets up and continues to minister. (laughs) What if we were on Paul's team, his eldership team? Paul, uh, you really need a 12-month break, buddy. Sabbatical. What does he do? He keeps on working because God had called him to a great work. And because God had called him, God will provide all the strength that we need. The fourth thing, and I'm, and I'm done. We need to fight for our brothers and our sisters. Nehemiah does something profound here. This is, this is so powerful and profound, especially in this context, in this room presently. Nehemiah 4.19, And I said to the nobles and to the officials and the rest of the people, the work is great and gri- gr- widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. You see the problem? Uh, the, word, the work is great and it's spread out. They're not close and huddled and they have their kind of protection. No, they're spread out in this work that God has called them to. 
And his instruction is, hey, if any of us come under attack, here's what we do. You blow your horn. Right? And we're all going to come running to fight for you. Going to come running and fighting for you. And people, we are this movement wanting to make much of Jesus, to strengthen and plant churches. We're, we're in partnership together. It's genuine relationship. We are scattered about. We're scattered all over the world. We're scattered all over the nation. Even in the States, we're having a hard time to connect because we're flights away. We're not just a drive down the street. We're scattered. The work is great, and we're scattered about. But what we are to do when we're facing opposition is we don't fight alone. We don't fight in isolation. We, we don't try to grind it out without sounding our horn. I don't care how you blow your horn. I don't care what it sounds like. I mean, it sounds off key, but you blow that horn. Blow that horn. Tell people, hey, I'm getting attacked and I need help. Rally the troops because we have a responsibility to fight for our brothers and our sisters, our wives, our kids. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you've called us to a great work. God, though it's trying at times, though we're opposed by the enemy, though we feel weak at times, and you never abandon us, Never leave us alone. God, you, you are there. You're the God that fills us with your spirit. You're the God that infuses faith in our hearts and confidence in you. You're the, you're, you're the God that links us with others to participate in this great work. God, we commend ourselves to you. In Jesus' name.